Okay, why don't why don't we uh, sting on? I'm on. You guys hear me? Okay, a little bit better. There we go. Let's uh, go before the Lord one more time in prayer, Father. I feel a special purpose today to approach your word with reverence, Lord, and with awe as we speak about Christ and the holy things and how those things were only preparatory for the fullness of who Jesus is. And so, Lord, we pray that uh, as we approach the text and, Lord, as we ask you for your help now, that you would so bless us to see Christ more clearly. Father, that we would see greater facets of his glory, his person, his work, and that we would be so deeply encouraged to serve him, the center of all worship, with reverence and awe. We ask your blessing on our time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That is the uh, subject of this passage. That is Christ and the holy things. And uh, I couldn't help but to think when the author of Hebrews says at the end of the text that we read there, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail, I would add, but we can because we have the time. He did not. So we are going to look into detail uh, with regards to some of these holy things and how they point to Christ. But let me just begin by stipulating that this is all the work of the priest that is set before us here. This is all having to do with the priesthood and primarily with the high priest. Let me begin by saying, therefore, that a priest is someone that is consecrated by God for a holy purpose. He is separated by God for holy things, and he is given access into holy places where others cannot go. This is uniquely true of the tabernacle priests, and even more so, of course, of the high priest who once a year was allowed uh, into the holy of holies, a place where no one else was allowed to go into. And um, you see that God, therefore, is building an understanding in our minds that there were degrees of approaching Him that we had to honor and to respect. Matter of fact, this simple basic tabernacle pattern is something that the, the Israelites would have learned even before the construction of the tabernacle. Uh, many have pointed out that, matter of fact, Sinai, Mount Sinai, was a, a primitive uh, tabernacle of sorts. In other words, it acted like a tabernacle structure, and it had three compartments just like the tabernacle. There was the outer court where the people, the majority of the congregation was allowed to remain, and that's in Exodus 19 verse 12. But uh, also at the same time, the priests and the 70 elders were allowed to climb up, as the text says, a bit further up the mountain to come closer into a closer relationship with God up the mountain, Exodus 19, verse 22, and 24, verse 1. But of course, only Moses 
could ascend to the very top of the mountain, to the most holy place where you remember back in Moses' calling was so holy, he had to remove the sandals from his feet and recognize that the very ground upon which he stood was holy ground because it had been so sanctified by God. It was made holy. The word to make holier, something being sanctified, literally has the idea of contamination. It can be contaminated in a good way or in a bad way, but obviously in, in, in embedded in the meaning of holiness as well is the idea that everything had been permeated with God's purity, and therefore whatever God was, everything around that was to be purified because His presence demanded it. Sinai revealed the orderliness of the future tabernacle structure that Moses was instructed to build. You remember, that is precisely what God told Moses. If you just back up to Hebrews 8, in verse verse 5 there, we are told that Moses was warned by God. In other words, this was very serious. That when he was about to erect the tabernacle, he was told, see He says that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. What Hebrews makes abundantly clear is that that archetypal pattern came from the heavenly sanctuary. Um, My wife is always telling me, make the sermon practical. (laughs) It's a good encouragement. But we are in some technical territory here with the tabernacle instruments and, uh, but I do, want to, um, I do want you to see that it has a practical application, so exhortation well taken. My wife always has a good word for me. Ever since the priesthood was introduced in Exodus, the general population of Israel was given a sanctuary order. They understood that. They were taught that they had to worship Yahweh in a certain way. And they were given limits, and they were given boundaries, and they understood the presence of God demanded all of these things. But it was also indicative that God's presence was ultimately pointing to a future form of access. Um, Look down at chapter 9, verse 8, because really, a lot of expositors take verses 1 through 10 all together. And the reason why, and I can see the reason for this, but because verse 8 is really the controlling exegetical factor of this passage. Um, I just can't cover that many verses in one sermon. It's just, it's difficult for me to do because once I start, I just get caught up and there's too many glorious things here for us to look at. So I go a bit slower. But if you look at verse 8, it says, What all these external things were symbolizing, or what uh, verse 1 talks about in terms of regulations for divine worship and the earthly sanctuary, verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying by this that the way into the holy place had not yet been disclosed, or the word revealed. It had not yet been revealed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. You see that? So the outer tabernacle, the, tab- the earthly tabernacle, the tabernacle that was erected in the wilderness and went with them wherever the camp of Israel went, and then ultimately the future uh, 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 a temple, which was a permanent architectural fixture on earth that did the same thing that the tabernacle did, which was basically to become the center of Yahweh worship. 
That that temporary structure was just that. It was temporary, and what it was indicating was that a future progressive revelation of the presence of God was coming. The tabernacle, in other words, was prophetic. It was prophesying something about the presence of God and how we as sinful people will have access into the presence of a holy God that is so blisteringly holy that only one man, only once a year, can go into the very holy place of God. And even then, he must be concealed in a cloud of smoke so that he cannot fully see God and so that God will not break forth and consume him lest he die right on the spot. That is a, that is a frightening prospect. And that was what the Ark of the Covenant symbolized as well, the presence of God. Remember when the Ark was stolen by the Philistines? That which was meant to symbolize the very presence of the covenant God of Israel for the Philistines. It was a symbol of judgment so that, that eventually they wanted to get rid of it. To get rid of this thing, it's going to kill us all. And that is because... No one was to tamper with the Ark of the Covenant because of what it represented. Because of what it represented. What the author is going to show us here is that with all of these regulations of divine worship, they were ultimately symbolic. Typological is the, is the real technical Greek term, tupas, which means type. It was all a type, a shadow, a foretelling of a person, Christ, which is what makes it so amazing. If you think about it, the tabernacle was Christological at its very heart and soul. That's why you and I have no problem uh, in the new covenant, understanding Christ, having all these things disclosed to us. We have no problem as today, even before coming to church, I was doing devotions. Well, after I went over my sermon, I started doing devotional reading out of Leviticus because I'm just flipping page after page after page, and I'm just saying, Christ, Christ. <laughs> Christ, Christ is everywhere. And I'm supposed to preach a 45-minute sermon? I heard David Platt had a church service called Underground Church where it was like a six-hour service or something like that. That's what I'm talking about. You guys better watch out for an announcement. <laughs> um, maybe if we actually go underground, we'll start doing that. But the author is going to set in front of us a few things here. He's going to talk to us about the theme of sanctuary worship, verse 1. He's going to talk about the furnishings of the holy place. That's kind of the outer court. And then he's going to talk about the furnishings of the inner court, the holy of holies, where he's going to really spend the majority of his time. But notice that he introduces the old covenant again. If you go back to verse 1, it says, Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship. Now, the first covenant, well, really, just the literal Greek word is first. Notice in your Bible, hopefully, unless you have an ESV or some other, um, the word covenant is italicized, and that's because the word covenant, berit or diatheke, is not in the text. The word the first is actually what he is using to latch onto that, uh, speaking of the covenant. But if you go back to verse 7, that's where it's introduced as well. For if that first covenant had been faultless, and then again he mentions it again at the end of chapter 8, verse 13, he says, 
a new covenant he has made the first obsolete. But now, that's a big statement. The first covenant is obsolete. And now he wants to bring in a balancing act to remind us. Now, let me qualify something about the first. He says, now even the first had regulations of divine worship and and the earthly sanctuary. So he doesn't want us to dismiss the significance of the, of the old covenant. He doesn't want us to dismiss the old covenant uh, uh, priesthood and the old covenant ceremonies and the old covenant rituals. They all have a very important uh, role to play in God's unfolding redemptive purposes. But he wants us to understand those things in context. This is exactly what Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. I could just read it to you, but there, Paul does essentially the same thing. He brings in the glory of the old only to, to end up showing us the surpassing or the supremacy of the new. He says, 1 Corinthians 3, 9, For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, and it certainly did, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. And again, for indeed that What had glory, in this case, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For that which fades away was with glory, but much more, that which remains is with glory. That's the way he, this is kind of a parallel passage. So if you're studying Hebrews, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 is very important for you to keep your finger there and cross-reference back and forth because this is, This is uh, very, very similar to Paul's ideas. And if you think that Paul wrote Hebrews, well, then even more so. It's a close, very, very close parallel. But ultimately, we know that who wrote the Bible, which is God. So one ultimate divine author working through multiple human authors to accomplish the same redemptive purpose and to speak the same redemptive message. That's what Scripture is. The author calls the tabernacle the earthly sanctuary, the Hagion Cosmicon, not only to prepare the way for the heavenly sanctuary, which we're going to talk much more about later in chapter 9, but also to stress the fact that this earthly tabernacle was temporary. In other words, it was transient. It was just passing by. It was, it was ultimately typological because it was pointing forward to something greater than itself. Because it is earthly, it is inferior. Now look back to chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 18. The tabernacle belonged to that system that the author described as weak. Look at verse 7, or excuse me, chapter 7, verse 18. He says, For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. You see that? Why is it called useless? Is there something wrong with the law? Is there something wrong with the old covenant? Well, no, look at chapter 8, verse 7. It clarifies for us what he's talking about. He says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. And then look at the explanation, verse 8. For finding fault with the covenant. No. For finding fault with them. You see that? So the covenant was weak in the sense that it never perfected the worshiper to the degree that they could not break or, 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 or turn away from their covenant obligations and thus break the covenant. 
And that's what chapter uh, verse 9 is going to go on to talk about. That they broke the covenant and God stopped caring for them. And as I mentioned, in the new covenant, the glorious supremacy of the new covenant is seen first and foremost in that God will never say of us who are in Christ, in the new covenant, in salvation, true, genuine salvation, who have the law written on their hearts, you will never hear the word of God say of us, God does not care for you. Doesn't exist. Because to be in the new covenant means that you are in Christ. And because you are in union with Christ, God cannot but be favorably disposed to you. Now, let's begin looking at the furnishings of the tabernacle. Let's begin with the holy place, which is really the first tent. Um, The tabernacle was kind of a big rectangular structure having an outer court, and then it had uh, an inner structure having two compartments. One was the holy place, which was really in rectangular shape, Whereas the Holy of Holies was a perfect symmetrical cube, which I think ultimately is pointing to the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, and the new earth, which is also in a perfect symmetrical cube, which I think we are meant to to make the connection that what is heaven but the inhabiting of God's people in the Holy of Holies with God for all eternity. That's what he's talking about. But uh, here... He begins to talk about um, its furniture. And there are three objects. There's the lampstand, there's the table, and the sacred bread. And then it mentions here the altar of incense, which is interesting because if you look at the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 30, verse uh, chapter 40, uh, Leviticus chapter 16, the altar of incense is actually, um, actually resides uh, not uh, in the Holy of Holies, as it's referenced here in verse 4, but it's actually in the holy place. So you have the holy place, and then you have the holy of holies, where in the Old Testament, the altar of incense is in the, in the holy place and not in the holy of holies. And so what uh, commentators have suggested is that what he is referring to is the bringing in of the incense on the, on the, um, on the, the, the fire pan, as Leviticus says, where they would bring the coals and the incense that was mingled together in fire, and they would bring that through the veil and bring the incense altar, as it were, with it. But let me begin with these first two articles, that is, the lampstand and the table of the sacred bread, or as it can be translated, the table of the presence, as it is called, rather, the table of the presence. First, then, the first article speaks of what we can say Christ's illumination. He is, in other words, the lampstand, The lampstand was a tree-like structure in the holy place that would provide light for the priest to to operate. We are told in connection to the temple that Jesus is, in fact, the light of the world. And that's what John chapter 9 is all about. Jesus pronounces himself, as it were, the menorah of the universe. And in John chapter 1, verse 9, We are told that Jesus literally illuminates every man coming into this world by virtue of conscience, but more importantly, He is the light of the world by virtue of His salvific light that He imparts. So He tells His disciples in John chapter 9, verse 5, walk in the light while while the light is among you. We are to walk in the light while He is among us. 
He brings the people of God the saving light of his life, of his spirit, of his truth, of the gospel. That's what it is. The tabernacle furniture not only reminds us, though, that uh, Jesus illuminates us, but also that Jesus provides for us. If you think about the table of the sacred bread, it had a very practical purpose. It was a simple reminder to the people of Israel that God was their provider. And what was on the table of this bread? Well, what was on there was 12 loaves of manna. What does the manna remind you of? Uh, Furthermore, what would it have reminded the children of Israel of? Matter of fact, they just came out of the wilderness. They would have been reminded of the fact that God in the wilderness provided manna for them. There's no question. But in John chapter 6, you may want to turn there. John chapter 6, Jesus makes again these unequivocal statements about himself and his typological fulfillment of all these things. He says in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Well, if you think about the context of what had just happened, jump up to verse 30. It says, so they said to him, what then do you do as a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven. He gave them bread out of heaven. They're going back to uh, Exodus 16. He says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Always give us this bread reminded them no doubt of the fact that in Leviticus and in Exodus, they said the bread was to be on the table continually. Always they were to be uh, confronted and reminded with this bread. And it was in God's presence to remind them of this simple fact, that God is our provider, that he is fully aware of your needs. Now think about that. Those loaves of bread sitting on that table is indicative of the fact that God knows what bills you need to pay. God knows that you need that money that week. God knows that you need help in your family. God knows that you need the most practical of things. And you, you, need, you need clothing. You need food. You need sustenance. You need a job. God is perfectly aware of all of your physical, temporal, material needs at all times. He never has to be reminded. But more importantly... And precisely what Jesus fulfills is that the bread itself, the bread of the presence, sitting in the presence of God in the, in the uh, outer court or the outer tent of the tabernacle, the holy place, was reminding us of something greater. In other words, of a greater need. We have a greater need than just our physical needs. Think of it this way, folks. Every time you are tempted to think of some material need that you have, some trial that has come into your life by way of the fact that you lack something, let's say you lack opportunity, you lack opportunity at work, let's say some of your needs are not being met in your home, at work, in your finances, with the kids, in the family, remember that that is God's type for you to remind you You have a greater need than that. 
And I tell you what, when that happens, when you are reminded, all of a sudden, your perspective changes. And you remember that, you know, as much as I need this in this situation, my greater need is to be spiritually sustained by God. Now, how are you going to be spiritually sustained by God? Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. In other words, infinite satisfaction in Christ. The bread of the presence was a reminder for you and I to feast on Christ daily, continually. It is, a, it is an invitation to communion with God, communion with the Son. But let's move, let's move to, the, to the Holy of Holies because of these things we cannot speak in detail now. <laughs> we can't speak in much detail of each one. We'll be here all day. But this is what's so magnificent about this. I encourage you, while well, this just popped into my mind, let me encourage you to get a book, okay? Um, um, you need to get a book by Alan Ross, and it's a commentary on Leviticus. And I tell you what, I can't stop reading that commentary. Uh, Alan Ross has done such a great job of going through all the material of Leviticus, the stuff that people think is boring in the Bible, and he shows us the Christological connections so that all of a sudden you realize when you're reading Leviticus, you're actually in Christian territory. You're reading about the work of Christ. And so Leviticus by Alan Ross, I got to put in a plug for that. He seems to really focus in on the inner tabernacle, what he, what he calls going behind the second veil which Jesus is especially related to. And the reason why, look back at Hebrews 9, 6. This is why. This is why the reason is, this is why it's connected to this. is because it's connected to the priesthood. It's connected to the high priest. He says, now when these things have been so prepared, all these things are simply preparatory of what? The priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing divine worship, but into the second that is the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood. That becomes very significant. Which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Now, the author of Hebrews has already told us back in chapter 5 that Jesus does not need to make atonement for himself. And he does the same thing in uh, Hebrews chapter 7. You remember there, we are told that Jesus is such a high priest who is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He doesn't need to make atonement for himself, which is a remarkable idea. But the author now goes behind the second veil, and he mentions here again the work of the, the, work of the golden altar of incense. That's the first thing. So here in the second Behind the second veil in the Holy of Holies, he's going to speak of Christ's intercession, Christ's atonement, and Christ's transcendence. Christ's transcendence. So first, his work of intercession. That is exactly what needed to happen for the people of God. They needed a mediator, in other words. And Jesus, it says, 
He lives forever to intercede for us. Now, I want you to do me a favor and turn to Leviticus uh, 16. Leviticus 16, because there we are told of this work of the, the, the altar of incense and what the priest was supposed to be doing there, why he was to perform these things, and it had implications for him, but ultimately it has implications for us. Look at Leviticus 16.11. It says, Then Aaron shall offer the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for, the, for his household, and he shall slaughter the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself. He shall take a firepan full of coals, that is, from the courtyard, from the altar that was in that courtyard. He says, and from, from upon the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense. That's the altar of incense. That was in the holy place. And he, should, and he would bring them inside the veil. You see that? That's the holy of holies. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord. Watch this. That the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony, otherwise he will die. Folks, the ark of the covenant, which is the second piece of furniture, is what we can call an evangelical ark. The gospel is present in the ark. Why does he have to do this? So that he will not die? Well, for several things. Because as a sinner, as a lawbreaker, he cannot go into the presence of God. Secondly, because God's very voice was to be present at the ark between the cherubim. He was going to speak there, and if he, if he interacted with God directly without any sort of veil, what were those veils for? The veils are to protect us from being consumed as uh, Hebrews goes on to say in Hebrews 12, God is a consuming fire. God's presence is like a fireball of holiness. It is like a blazing sun. You ever get blown away when you hear uh, the, the, the facts of astronomy and they talk about, well, we found a star that's 15 trillion times bigger than the sun, and you're like, I'm supposed to be able to take that in, right? Like, wow, right? Since the earth can fit in the sun, our sun can fit in the sun probably millions of times, okay? And then they're telling us our sun, there are stars, suns, so much bigger than that sun that our sun can fit in those stars millions of times. And you're left to wonder, wow, truly the heavens are declaring the glory of God. But all the suns in all the universe throughout all of time do not compare with the blazing holiness of Almighty God. If we stand in God's presence uncovered, if we stand in the presence of God without atonement, we will be instantly incinerated. This is why Jesus had to take on flesh. Because Jesus, like the Father, could say, if you see me in all my glory, Moses, if you stand with me face to face, which means unmitigated access to the very holiness and presence of God, Jesus would have came here with a simple mission, incinerate planet Earth. 
but his glory, his holiness was veiled in his flesh so that we can, as John says, touch him, handle him, listen to him, hear him, see him. Praise God that Jesus came to tabernacle among us. Why do I call the Ark of the Covenant an evangelical ark? Very simply, because of all of, the fi- all of the things that were contained in the ark. For example, let's look back at the text, Hebrews 9. It says, beginning in verse, uh, beginning in verse 4, there in the middle, it says, The ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, Aaron's rod which budded, the, te- the, 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 the tables of the covenant, which is the Ten Commandments. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. That is what is involved in the Ark of the Covenant. And the reason why I call it an evangelical ark is think about what is happening when the high priest is coming in and the incense, the incense and the cloud there, as Leviticus tells us, the cloud of incense, what it is doing is it, is it is obscuring the presence of God to the priest so that he couldn't fully see. The other thing that it's doing is it's rendering God favorably disposed to us. It becomes a sweet-smelling aroma in the nostrils of God. Why? Because of the work of the covenant, of the Ark of the Covenant. It was to come in with blood, remember? Chapter 9, verse 7, not without taking blood. Nothing happens without blood. As Hebrews will go on to say, everything is cleansed with blood everything. Even the priests were to be splattered with blood. And God, on His majestic throne, because that's what the ark was, coming down, would be looking down into the contents of the ark of the covenant, and what does He see? His broken law. And what does the breaking of the law of God demand the wrath of God. Or the Scottish reformers would say, the wrath of God coming down. And the only way that the priest and you and I will not be consumed is if the mercy seat is covered in blood. So what does, G- what does God see ultimately in the work of the priest? What does God see as he looks down into the ark? I, I am submitting to you that what he sees is Christ, 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 Christ. He looked down upon the ark of the covenant and he saw the law which... He saw the one who fulfilled the law, Christ. He looked down into the Ark of the Covenant and he saw the manna. And what did that remind him of? The fact that he would send from heaven the bread of life. He looked down on the mercy seat and he saw the blood everywhere. And what did he see but the blood of the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. Finally, The Ark of the Covenant also reminds us of the transcendence of Christ. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, it's no surprise that the Ark of the Covenant is to be a typological throne of God. It symbolizes the throne. 
And one thing that Hebrews makes abundantly clear over and over and over and over in Hebrews is that Jesus has been exalted, exalted, exalted. And no better place right here than Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, who he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. You want to talk about transcendence? It's because he's in a position of transcendence. Look, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is between the cherubim. John chapter 12. Maybe you should turn there with me quickly. John chapter 12. You guys are not in a rush today, right? In John chapter 12... We are told of the vision that Isaiah saw when he saw the glory of the Lord. He saw the Lord high and lifted up. And the inspired writer tells us in John 12, 41, these things, no, 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 very careful. Let's walk real slow here, okay? These things Isaiah said, not uh, post-Isaiah, not somebody commenting on Isaiah, not, but not somebody preaching on the book of Isaiah, not another prophet talking about Isaiah, not an apostle who is trying to clarify Isaiah. He says inherently, original meaning here, Isaiah said this because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Who is the him? It is none other than Jesus Christ. Isaiah saw the risen, transcendent Lord of the universe, Jesus Christ, sitting on his throne in the midst of his angels, the cherubim, the seraphim. And his revelation will go on to talk about the myriads of endless angels that surround the throne. And he spoke and he saw him. Jesus is the enthroned, transcendent shepherd. This is why Jeremiah, David says in Psalm 80, verse 1, it is the shepherd of Israel who is enthroned above the cherubim. Correlate that with John 10. The good shepherd is also the enthroned shepherd who transcends the heavens. Remember, my dear friends, that the first tent before you went into the Holy of Holies, that first tent was covered in deep blue curtains. Uh, sh turn there with me because I've got to show you this. Exodus chapter twenty. Uh, 26, I believe, Exodus 26. You ever wonder why, why it has to be this way? Why couldn't they have been white curtains? Why the colors that he chose? Exodus 26, verse 1. 
And you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen, blue, purple, and scarlet. The mixture of those colors in the Jewish tradition symbolized the visible universe, the, the deep blue tints of the sky and the stars. And as Josephus points out in his writing, commenting on the nature of the curtains of the tabernacle, there was needlework on the curtains. Someone sewn stars and planets and luminaries into the curtains. And what was that symbolizing? It symbolized that when the high priest went through the veil to the Holy of Holies, he was passing through the heavens. What does Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 say? Is it Hebrews 4? Excuse me, Hebrews. Yeah, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. What does it say about our high priest? Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us, not hold, fa let us hold fast to our confession. Isn't that remarkable? What is the author of Hebrews saying? He's saying, forget the curtains, man. Jesus went through the universe into the holy place, onto the throne, what are you worried about? Hold fast when life begins to shake beneath your feet. Hold fast when the theological compromise blows through the church. Hold fast when people within your own assembly rise up, as Pastor Chris was teaching in Sunday school, to speak strange doctrines. Hold fast to the gospel because we have a high priest who went through the heavens and ascended there. And what, is, what does he go on to say in, uh, in this very same chapter? He says that we have, a, we have a forerunner, chapter 6 rather, chapter 6. He says that Jesus is our forerunner. He went before us. Jesus is on a mission that took him through the universe, through this realm, into the invisible realm of the presence of God, in the sanctuary of God, in heaven. But he did it not only for us, but he did it with us. We are so united to Jesus that we too, dear friends, will one day go through the heavens, as it were, to follow our forerunner, our captain of our salvation, to follow our leader. If he doesn't come first, and if he comes first, hallelujah, we will be just like he is. No wonder the author of Hebrews says, of these things we cannot speak in great detail right now. Because I feel like going for another three hours, but I won't. I will pray, we will close, and we will look by God's grace next week specifically at the task of the priest. Let's pray together. Father, 
the whole message of Hebrews is, can be summed up in two words. Draw near. Lord, because we have such a great access through a new and living way, that is through the blood of Jesus, we have access into the throne of grace to draw near to you by faith. And Lord, we ask now that you would pinpoint those places, those things, those, those forces within us that keep us from drawing near. And remind us, Lord, that there is no better place to be than to be near your presence, than to draw near by faith, than to come to the throne of grace in prayer, in fellowship, in communion with God. And Lord, we are so grateful for Jesus. Because of Jesus, when we draw near, we are well-pleasing in your sight. Because of Jesus, when we draw near, you will not reject us. You will not turn us away. You will not consume us. But you will be there to speak to us, to reveal yourself to us, and to commune with us for Christ's sake. We bless your holy name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.